This Sunday marks the halfway point of a sermon series that we're in the middle of on the subject of desperation. And the aim of this series is to try and help us get our heads and our hearts around what it means to navigate our way towards dependence. We've looked at the gift of desperation. We saw the barrier of desperation, namely the issue of self-sufficiency. And today we're going to talk about the issue of humility and how do we cultivate humility. This is important at two levels. One, it's important for you at a personal level. And my hope is that you'll be helped by this and know how to follow Jesus if you're a Christian or if you're not yet a Christian. You'll, you'll see what it means today to become one. But it also is important for us as a church in light of kind of where we are right now. The Lord has placed some incredible things in front of us and some opportunities for us to consider. And as a staff and as elders, we're thinking and praying, Lord, what do you want for us in this next season of ministry? Had somebody look up some information for me last uh, few weeks, and I just want to share with you just some important data points. In 2015, we launched what we call our Next Door Mission, which is our church planting strategy. And since 2015, we've gone from one church to four, soon to be five. During that time period, North Indy, this congregation, has sent away 450 people, 450 people who've left to go help plant those churches. And you need to know that as of today, those other churches have a net attendance of 800 people. So we sent away 450 people. Now those churches are at 800. In the midst of that, since 2015, our giving, while we've given away 450 people, our giving has actually increased by over a million dollars since 2015. And in the midst of that, lest you think it's all just about church planting, we've given consecutive offerings three years in a row of a million dollars or more to reach unreached peoples and have launched 23 different people to serve in some foreign mission capacity. Now, in the midst of all of that, so North India's given away these people, 450. Our net attendance since 2015 is down 135. So we sent away 450. We're only down 135. And you need to know that over the summer, our attendance is up by 8%. The goal of all of this is for us to realize that as a church at North Indy, for us to be a healthy, vibrant, gospel-centered, sending community is really important. The extent to which we can help reach our city is the extent to which this body is healthy, growing, and strong. And so, as a church, we're thinking through, and as elders, praying through, what is it that God has for us, and how can we be the kind of people who have a healthy, vibrant community that can sustain the sending of people away, the giving away of our resources, because at the end of the day, our goal is not just to be a large church. Our goal is to try and reach the city, to reach the nations with the hope of the gospel. So, the vision for this series is to help us think individually about desperation, but also for us to think as a church, what does it mean to be desperate? Because there's a temptation, a temptation that happens when a church gets large and gets good at what it does, that it can begin to rest on its success or begin to trust in itself. And so the calling of this series is not just for you as individuals, but also for all of us to think through, what does it mean as a collective body for us to say, God, we need you. What are you calling us to do? And how can you help uncurl our fingers from all the things that you want to use for your glory? So next week we'll conclude. We're going to actually do some things in the service. We're going to talk about the voice of desperation, namely what it means to pray. 
and our Sunday morning service will be modeled after our typical Sunday evening service once a month that we call a worship-based prayer night. We're going to bring that into the morning, so we're going to actually have some times of prayer together, a little bit of teaching, and then Sunday night we'll continue our regular rhythm once a month of gathering to pray together as God's people. So we'll have prayer in the morning, prayer at night, and then also next Sunday I hope you'll come because we have a church fellowship time, some food, some games, opportunity just to connect to get to know one another more deeply. When the series is done and after Labor Day, we'll start a new series on the Gospel of John. We'll begin that series in September, and it'll be about nine weeks, and we'll cover 18 verses in nine weeks. So we're going to move really slow, and here's why. Because John chapter 1 is that important. Today we're talking about the issue of humility. How do we cultivate desperation through humility? In the same way that self-sufficiency is the common problem, I want you to see today that humility is supposed to be the common denominator of how followers of Jesus are supposed to live. There's no scenario, in no situation, in no possible way that you should not be humble. Or let me state it positively. In every situation, in every circumstance, no matter where you are in life, no matter how old or how young, humility is what we all ought to embrace as our posture. So this morning from 1 Peter 5, we wanna look at the call of humility and the hope of humility and help you see how cultivating this very important quality of the Christian life, humility, is essential to desperation. So here first, the call of humility. 1 Peter 5, 6 to 11 is the signature text in relationship to the issue of humility, and Peter is writing to a group of people who are experiencing some significant suffering. It's interesting. Suffering automatically opens the door for humility. Suffering, the gap between where you'd like life to be and where it actually is, reminds you that you're not in control of your life. Suffering has a way of clarifying this for us. It exposes our self-sufficiency. And my guess is there's many of you that you, you knew you were dependent upon God's grace and then the bottom fell out and you really know it now. I mean, you really know how your life just sort of hangs on this thin thread. There's others of you that in the midst of that suffering or that hardship, you've discovered that humility isn't just something you needed to remember, it's actually a mindset now that you've come to embrace. And the amazing thing is that out of the, the moment of your suffering, you've come to taste the goodness of embracing your humility, and my hope is as you come out of that suffering that you'll see how to apply that in sort of the normal, everyday experience of life. The fact of the matter is, is that desperate moments humble us. And desperate moments create an affection for humility. In verse 6, we see a command. Here's what it says. Look at your Bible. It says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Humble yourselves. Do you know what the word humble means? The problem with it, it's such a common word. We may not really know the full aspect of what the Bible intends. At one level, the word means to be brought low, to be brought down, to reduce in rank or to reduce in status. In fact, the Apostle Paul uses it in reference to what hard circumstances revealed to him about himself. He says, I know how to be brought low. That's the word humble there. 
I know how to abound in every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So Paul knew seasons of, of comfort. He also knew seasons of humiliation. But what you need to know is that the word in the scriptures is more closely connected to the idea of one's attitude. So the word means to make the heart small. But it's not as though you make your heart small. The idea is this, it's the realization that your heart is small. And it's small in comparison to something else. So it's not that you sort of falsely create this condition or this mindset that is inaccurate. Rather, it's you bring yourself down or you're reminded as to who you really are. So Jesus put it this way in Matthew 18. Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is saying you have to become like children in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. What what does that mean? If If you're not a Christian, here's what that means. It means that you have to be dependent on Christ for everything that you are, for your forgiveness, for atonement. So humility then is a re-leveling. If you're taking notes, so you wanna just write this down. Here's a really important concept. Humility is a re-leveling. It helps us to see ourselves for who we really are. One of the reasons you should go on a vision trip is because by going to a foreign country, you get a better sense of what your life is like here in the United States. You'll come back a little more humble about what God is doing. He's not just doing things in Indianapolis, not just doing things in the United States, he's doing things around the world. Or if you go up to a large tower like the One World Center, I was there recently, and you just, you get a perspective. On the ground, everything seems, you seem kind of large. You go up to the tower, and not even that many stories up, and you just get a sense how small and, and minuscule human beings really are. The fact of the matter is, is that humility happens when we see ourselves, and in this text it says, in comparison to who God is. You need to know that humility always has some kind of comparison built in. For instance, think of moments in your life when you, were, when you felt humbled. Maybe you were top in your class in high school, and then you went to college and you were average. <laughs> Your small high school, you were the the smartest person when you went to college, and there's a lot of other smart people. Maybe you said something one time at a party only to reveal how little you knew about that particular subject, and you were embarrassed because people didn't think you were as smart as what you want them to think you are. Or you ever had it before where you're walking along and you trip over something? Why is that embarrassing? I mean, do not human beings trip? The fact of the matter is we want to walk in life and have people think, I never trip. That's what we want people to think. (laughs) Or your kids. Remember the last time you were at Costco and they threw a fit and you were so embarrassed. Why are you embarrassed? It happens at home, right? (laughs) But when you're in Costco, you want the world to think, my kids don't throw a fit. See, there's this this comparison. Or maybe you're single and you 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 were getting signals from somebody in a dating relationship and then you got friend-zoned. And you realize what you hoped was not actually gonna happen. 
Or maybe you didn't make the team, you got cut, and you suddenly realize, in light of everybody else, I'm the 10th best person in my school, and there's only nine spots. So comparison is baked into the concept of humility, whether it's what people think of you, what you think of yourself, what you want people to think of you, this, this comparison is central to what makes us feel humbled in a negative way. Positively, Peter says, humble yourselves, therefore, notice what his comparison is, under the mighty hand of God. Ah, here we see what Christian humility is. It is seeing ourselves in light of who God is in light of his might, in light of his power. So you can define biblical humility then as simply this, seeing myself in light of who God is. That's a good starting point. Seeing myself in light of who God is, but there's even more. The the tense of the language here, when it says humble yourselves, you need to know that's that's a command. But in the original language, if you're a person who likes like original language study, it's an aorist passive imperative. Here's what that means. It means that it's a completed effect or a completed situation. You are humbled. Passive means it's done to you. You didn't do it. It happened to you. And imperative means it's a command. So you're commanded to to embrace something that was done to you, which is who you already are. Let Let me help you get your head around this, what this means. The best illustration that I can come up with is that we are to embrace the condition that God has put us in, and in this case, to not think of ourselves more highly than who we really are. So, for instance, I've used this illustration before in another setting, a a, a basketball illustration. So I'm six foot five, and there were numerous times that my coach would say to me, Mark, be six five. And what he meant by that was I was playing like I was shorter than I was six five. So in that sense, he wants me to play up to my height, But imagine another scenario where he wants me to play like I'm 6'5", because I'm playing like I'm 6'10". Imagine I go down the paint and there's a seven-footer standing in front of the rim, and I go up, I'm going to dunk on him, and as I go up, I get stuffed. As I'm running back down the court, he says, Rogop, just be 6'5", all right? That's the idea. Just be who you are. Don't act like you're more than who God has really made you. So humility not only understands who God is, but humility wholeheartedly embraces that reality. It's not merely intellectually affirming that God has a mighty hand and I'm to humble myself under that mighty hand, but it, it means that I allow that mindset of who I am and who God is, listen, to permeate every aspect of my life. It means that I just operate in this world as a follower of Jesus that God's in charge. I'm not. For some of you, it's the whole reason you've came to church today. It was to be reminded something you already knew to be true, but somehow over the course of the week, it leaked. Or in the context of suffering, now it's become very clear, and oh, that's right, God's in charge, and I'm not. You see, proud, sufficient people make the mistake of living as if they're actually in charge of their life. And one of the hopes, the beautiful power dynamics of the gospel is the realization, I am not in control of my life. So if you come to church today and someone's like, how are you? You're like, out of control. (laughs) 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 Amen, brother, welcome, right? Life is a mess. 
Amen, right? The fact of the matter is life's always a mess. It's always out of control. We just like to put little layers over top of it. This all begins with the gospel. If you're not yet a Christian, not yet a follower of Jesus, those of us who are followers of Jesus have come to understand that the Bible tells us that God is holy, we're not, and that's a problem. And the only solution to that is Jesus. Like, I can't solve my own sin problem. I can't self-atone, can't do enough righteous deeds. I can't cover my own iniquities. I need somebody else, namely Jesus, to forgive me not only of what I've done or what I will do, but to forgive me of who I am. I need Jesus to rescue me from the rebellion that just is inside my heart. And becoming a Christian means that I give up on me and I trust Jesus. So Christianity starts in this humbling But it doesn't end there. Tim Keller says this, true gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I just stop thinking about myself. It's the freedom of self-forgetfulness, the blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings. A truly gospel person, a truly gospel humble person, he writes, is not a self-hating person or a self-loving person, but a gospel humble person. In other words, they, they, they see all of life through this lens of how the gospel informs both who they are and their relationship with God. Notice next here that this calling of humility not only involves the right definition, understanding who God is, but it also is cultivated through prayer. Look at verse seven. Last week I said that self-sufficient people don't pray. This is where I get that from. Verse seven says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So humility and desperation are cultivated through prayer. The word casting is a participle, which means it is the expression of the verb, humble yourselves. In other words, you humble yourself how? By casting. The word doesn't mean like cast like a fishing rod and then pull it in or cast like a net and pull it in. The idea is this, that you cast something on something else such that that other thing carries the burden. Luke 19, the disciples cast their garments on a donkey upon which Jesus rode. They transferred the garments to the donkey and the animal bore the weight of it. That's the idea. You take your burden and you transfer it to the Lord and say, I can't do this on my own. I need your help. And you let it go. You don't keep taking it back. That's the problem. Some of you treat prayer like you're casting a net rather than putting blankets on a donkey. You cast it out and you pull it in. You cast it out and you pull it in. And the idea here instead is that we pray by casting our care on Christ and allowing him to carry that burden. So we pray when we're desperate. Why do we pray when we're desperate? Because it's then that we realize we need God's help. But the idea of humility is this. Church, that we cultivate humility by regularly casting all of our cares all of our anxieties on him, knowing that he cares for us in big things and in small things. So is there anything in your life today that you just need to cast, lay at the feet of Jesus? Anything going on that's creating anxiety or anger? See, the key is to figure out how that, can, that mindset can be integrated into all of our areas all the areas of our lives. Jerry Bridges in his book, Respectable Sins, connects this to even small things like 
the challenge of travel and being late to a meeting. Here's what he says. I've come to the conclusion that my anxiety by these travel delays is triggered not so much by a distrust in God, but as an unwillingness to submit to and cheerfully accept his agenda for me. I tend to think, Lord, it's important I arrive on time to speak at that meeting. People in charge are counting on me. What will they do if I don't arrive in time? But I've learned to say to myself, he's learned to pray, God, it's your meeting. If you don't want me there, that's your business. And what the people who are counting on me to be there will do is your business too. God, I accept your agenda for this situation, wherever, whatever that may be. All right, listen, this is where some of us need to get honest. Right now, right here, in this moment. There's some of you who have been carrying the weight and the pattern of self-sufficiency. You've seen the bottom drop out of your life, and the problem is when the bottom dropped out on something in your life, you spent so much time and energy trying to figure out how it happened. Where did you go wrong? What am I gonna do about it? How to get yourself out of it? And according to this text, it's time to stop that pursuit right here, right now, in this service to draw a line in the sand and say, I'm not going back. It's time to pray, God, I'm done. I'm trusting you with this. I know you can care for me and embrace the humility of who you really are in light of who God is. Now, some of you might immediately say, well, Mark, I've tried that. It didn't work. And to you, I would say, well, maybe it didn't work because God doesn't want it to work like you want it to work. Maybe you think, oh, I just do this once and then it's going to be over. And if it is, then you'd in fact think, oh, great, I listened, I heard from God, I did. and you'd fall right back into the same pattern. There's some of us that God intends to limit the success of what we do because God's aim in your life and mine is that we are dependent upon him. His aim is that we are um, those who are resting on his ability to give us grace. God is less interested in your life turning out like you've wanted He's more interested in your life reflecting the understanding that he's in charge and you're not. And some of you, that's the key battle. You have this idea, my kids are gonna be like this, my marriage is gonna be like this, my career is gonna be like this, my, my singleness, I'm gonna do all these things. You had all these plans and all of that got a little corrupted or a little challenged and the immediate thing that you do when that happens is you protest as if, who messed up the sovereign plan of Mark in the world? And it's a big facade. And we work so hard telling people to pay no attention to the man behind the curtain as we try and keep up this facade and God rips the curtain back and exposes us for our self-sufficiency. And when that exposure comes, why not just simply embrace it and say, I'm broken, I'm not sovereign, I'm not in control. But I know God cares for me and I know he can help me and I know that God wants me to be humble. Maybe you're not in crisis. Maybe you're not in a point where things have dropped off the face of the earth in terms of your plan. My encouragement to you would be keep casting your cares. Keep facilitating the kind of God-centered humility that you so desperately need. Not right now, not only right now, but also in the future. Maybe you could pray this particular prayer I found this week. Lord, I am willing to receive what you give, lack what you withhold, and relinquish what you take. So friends, that's the calling of humility. 
That's what Peter is calling us to do. It's calling us to embrace this mindset. Here now is the hope of humility. So there's a a second aspect that we see here that fits with this calling. He's writing to people, Peter's writing to people who are feeling the weight of their suffering and he calls them to humble themselves. And then what he does is he lists a series of statements. I'm gonna tease out four of them that fit with this previous calling. What does he say? First he says, beware of the devil, but realize that he can be resisted. Look at what he says in verse eight, be sober-minded. Why does he say be sober-minded? Because part of the problem, the devil's schemes, are that people fall into just sort of a stupor, just sort of living their lives. They aren't wary of the fact that the devil, he says, is a roaring lion. He prowls around seeking someone to devour. The idea is that Peter is calling these people to watch and to be awake. It's the same words that Jesus used with his disciples when he begged them to watch and pray that they fall not into temptation. And do you remember what happened in that story? They fell asleep, or in one case, Peter picked up a sword. And isn't that typical? We either are falling asleep or we're picking up a sword. We're either not doing enough or we're doing way too much. And Jesus says, watch, watch and pray. Peter says, be sober-minded. Sober-minded about what? That the devil is prowling around. Now, just think of a National Geographic special. You have a lion in the tall grass and you have a herd of antelope. As the antelope are running and the lion is prowling around, Who is the lion gonna target? The strong, aggressive, hardy antelope at the front of the pack? No, it's always kind of sad, isn't it, when you're watching the National Geographic, you're like, well, how come you don't pick on the the tough ones? And the reason is because the short, stubby, limping ones are easier to catch. The lion isn't dumb, right? So, So he goes after the one that's at the back of the pack, the one who's weak, the one who's limping. Let me ask, let me ask you this. Who does the devil target in our herd? I want to suggest to you it's exactly the opposite. That the devil prowls around seeking those who he may devour, and the ones that he goes after to devour, the easy targets are not the ones who think that they are weak, but rather he goes after the ones who think they got it all together. The weakness in our herd are the ones at the back of the pack strutting around like they got something going. So friend, I wanna just caution you if you're unusually gifted or if God's blessed something that you've been involved in, maybe you're just flying up the career ladder, I wanna caution you that you need a really big understanding of who God is because the higher you go in life, the more inclination you are to think, Look what I did. Your competitor goes off to the side. You, your, your company or your business or your group is doing really well. It's really tempting for you to go, man, we're killing it. And I want you to know you start to have that mindset, you're moving towards the back of the pack. You go off to college and have some sort of academic success. You're chosen as the most likely to succeed. Oh, how many bodies are littered under the mark of most likely to succeed? So what's the hope? Verse nine says, resist him. How? Firm in your faith. 
So the devil is defeated not by believing in yourself, but by believing the promises of God. This is why you need the regular assembly of God's people, why you need a group of people around you to speak the gospel into your heart, why you need to spend time in the word, and why you need to pray on a regular basis, because it reminds you that victory doesn't come to those who are self-assured. Victory, no, comes to those who know they can't make it unless they believe the promises of God. They walk into life going, I am weak, but he is strong. I can't do this unless you help me. I have no strength in my own self, but your word tells me this, and I believe and live on the promises of God. So therefore, we fight by faith. Here's the other thing. Verse 9 continues, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. In other words, you're not alone. I want you to understand that making it through hardship or difficulty is not an individual project, it's a community project. And I also want to tell you that humility is a community project. Somebody has said that humility or pride, excuse me, that pride is like bad breath. Everyone knows it, that you have it, but you, right? So you need, you need somebody, if you don't understand that, just go ah, to your neighbor. <laughs> We need people speaking into our lives because the problem with pride is we don't see it. Why? Because we're proud. It's a, it's a nasty catch-22. And so humility is birthed in a community of people who understand the gospel, know one another, and can help each other in order to follow Jesus. So we are not alone in our struggle. Third, the text tells us that God will help us. It says, after you have suffered a little while, here's the hope, there's limits God has divinely prescribed limits. And whether it's a limit in this lifetime or the fact that one day Jesus is gonna come and make everything right, and that's the limit, the fact of the matter is that suffering and the devil and hardship is on a leash. And one day the sovereign king's gonna come and say, we're done. And the devil's gonna be taken care of, all evil will be banished from the created order, and Jesus will reign, and there will be no tears and no crying and no hardship and no, any, any, no more sermons on humility. Instead, every thought you've ever had will be pure and right, and you never need to wonder, was that proud? No, you can't be proud anymore, because every inclination of your heart is set towards righteousness all the time. Until then, we have to rest in this hope that suffering will not be forever. He says, and the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will, some of you need to hear this today, you're in a hardship, you're in a difficult spot, listen to me, he himself will restore you, confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you. This is the crazy thing about moments when you are humbled when you are humbled, you taste the sweet but painful grace of Jesus' presence in your life. You taste and see his goodness. You taste and see how real he is when the bottom drops out and you're like, I got nothing but Jesus. And he shows up and provides grace. And then the goal is that after you've come through that hardship or season is that you continue to live on that grace the rest of your life. The text ends, verse 11, to him to him be the dominion forever and ever, amen. What a statement. To him, to him, to him be the dominion? This doxology looks to God's rule and his reign over a world where evil is so apparent. 
And what's crazy about that statement is that is not a normal thing for a sinful human being to say. Our operating ethic in our world is not to him be the dominion, it's to me be the dominion. And you need to know that when our plans get oriented in a way that are frustrating and we don't like what's happening and we push against that reality, we are having to make the decision, am I going to say to him be the dominion or am I going to say to me be the dominion? If you're a Christian, it means that your heart has been captured by God's grace. And what is a miracle is that this doxology not only resonates within your heart, but it is particularly meaningful even when life is costly. Even when life is hard. The evident display of the transformation that's happened in you is that you say yes, even at a funeral. Yes, even in this difficulty. Even in the struggles in our marriage. Even in my disappointment with how my life has turned out. To him be the dominion and glory forever and ever. That's a miracle. A miracle that we see him as supreme and not us. That we see his plan as perfect, not our own. And we believe his power can make a difference, not ours. That he's worthy of glory, not us. The gospel transforms us so that we can celebrate our weakness. We can embrace our dependency and tell God what was true all along. I need you. I need you. The upside-down logic of Christianity is that we not only have come to love the exaltation of God's name, but we take comfort in seeing ourselves as humbled under the mighty hand of God. So when suffering comes, when the gaps in life show themselves, we can trust that these are somehow a part of God's good plan. We can trust that God knows what he's doing And the gospel-loving heart of a Christian loves the glory of God and loves being desperate because that facilitates the glory of God. So friend, that means that you can not only survive through suffering, you can actually work to cultivate a desperate, humble heart. We can ask God, Would you help me today to be reminded that I'm underneath your mighty hand and I know that you care for me. Humble yourself, casting all your care upon him because he cares for you. Oh Lord Jesus, You know all of the issues that run through every single heart that's here today. There's nothing that's hidden from you. And we're thankful that you're sufficient to meet all the needs, all the burdens, all the things around which we tend to cling and grab a hold of. And so today, would you help us to rest in the fact that you can keep us. You can provide the grace that we need. And Lord, although we, some of us have known this like the last week, it's it's leaked, and so it's just a good reminder to say, Lord, I can trust you, I can rely on your grace. And others of us can simply say, God, would you remind me of who I am in light of who you are? 
Lord, thank you for the penetrating gaze of the word and its hope to those who would say, Lord, I need you. So help us now to respond to your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.